0: Listen, we're heading towards Christmas and part of that, we have started this Christmas season or this Christmas series. It's called The Thrill of Hope. We're in part two. If you missed last week, we'd love for you to go back and catch up on that. And I realized it was Christmas time this week because I entered into the one, most, one of the most dangerous activities that a human being can enter into around this part of the world and that's that I went to Costco on Friday at three o'clock in the afternoon. Have you guys ever done that at Christmas time? It was a mad house and the zoo, but I had some things I needed to get, and of course, buy a few steaks because that's always good when you go to Costco. Um, so I'm walking, I'm going down the aisle, and as I'm going down the main aisle, this was this is how treacherous this was, this lady who was about 10 years older than me in a cart, and she had the most determined look on her face, just ran right out in front of me and literally knocked me into a weight set. You know how they have all the weight sets at Costco? And I slammed into it, and she didn't say a word to me. And then it, to my like comfort and my rescue, there was this really cool African American woman and she said she thinks you're invisible honey that's what she said to me And I, you got that right, come on. And she said it loud enough that the older lady who almost ran me over heard it and she never turned around, but I was so satisfied by that. And and I I just realized, you know, this is a crazy time of year. Maybe you feel all that pressure. Maybe you've been at Costco. It's been kind of tense. Um, I'm just glad we get to navigate through what Christmas is really about when it comes to our Heavenly Father. And And I think about all the good that's happening in spite of those treacherous moments at Costco or in parking lots or wherever you know, you're doing life in your world, and how many amazing things people are doing in the name of Jesus around here. In fact, I was thinking about one particular way that's being expressed in our church, and that's through the amount of families over the last couple years that have decided to foster children in our world. Now, you just need to know this is not a fostering message. I'm not gonna ask anybody to sign up to be a foster parent today, so there's nothing like that. I just was, and I'm just in awe of that. And we've had three or four people on staff that have foster kids in their in their home. We have about... 10 plus different families that have fostered in the last year or so over 30 kids that have been foster kids have checked into our kids ministry and I sat down with a foster parent this week because I just wanted to ask them all right it's Christmas time and we know we're supposed to do good things at Christmas time but you seem to want to do good things for kids all throughout the year what does it cost you To be a foster parent. Because I was just really curious. And immediately this foster mom who has her own children, four of her own actually, kind of got welled up with tears in her eyes um, just thinking about it. Because she said it's a tremendous sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice of time. And you all know this. Time is our greatest asset. We will run out of money or time before we ever run out of money. So time is what's most precious in our lives. And when you foster kids that aren't yours, you give up some time. You give up some time of your own leisure, you have to give up some time with your spouse, you have to give up some time with your own biological kids, you have to give up some time, and time is precious, and you have to have patience, and you have to have empathy and you have to learn to think outside yourself. And I would just listen to this foster mom just talk through all these things it takes to be a foster mom. And this is one of the things I was thinking, I wasn't going to say it out loud today, but I'm going to say it now, is, man, compared to you, I'm not a very good person because I'm not sure I could even do all that you're doing for kids that aren't even my kids. And so I asked, so why do you foster? And this was the simple answer, because we decided, think about this. We decided we wanted to create an environment of real love, not superficial love, not cheap, but real love to children that may not have ever experienced real love. And not all foster kids have missed out on love in their lives, and that's not what she was saying, but she just said, we want to create an environment of real love. And I thought, boy, that sounds like the gospel to me. And I thought, man, would I be willing to do that for somebody else if they really needed it? Because it's a heart check. And then, and then this mom said, the hardest thing about fostering, Matt, you just need to know, because I told her I was going to share this a little bit with you guys. The hardest thing about fostering is you have to decide to accept heartbreak ahead of time, inevitably, or at least 98% of the time. And she explained it this way, because you bring children into your home that you know you're going to love and care for. And you're going to let them ask questions. And our best foster parents let their children ask questions when it comes to God. Because they bring them to church and they pray around the dinner table. And they read the scriptures together. And then you get attached not only to them emotionally but also spiritually. And then somewhere along the way they go back to wherever they came from. That's part of the fostering world. And she said, you have to decide to accept heartbreak ahead of time, because you know when they come into your home, you're going to have to have a broken heart when they leave because you learn to love them and you grow to love them so much. And so do your kids. And she said, sometimes with foster kids, your biological kids, you know, they fight like brothers and sisters, but sometimes they get really close and then they have to say goodbye and you have to decide on heartbreak ahead of time if you're going to foster kids that need to be loved in our world. And I thought, there it is. Didn't that sound a lot like Jesus? Didn't it feel like for those of us that know the gospel story, and if you don't, I'm gonna tell it to you today, so this is a great day to be here in the most simple way I can, that Jesus decided ahead of time to deal with a heartbreak with you and I because he gave his life on a cross for us and he knew some of us would never turn towards him. He knew some of us would turn towards him and turn away like time and time and time and time again. And he just decided, I'm gonna love you and then face the heartbreak ahead of time. 2,000 years ahead of time. I'm gonna give everything for you and some of you are gonna break my heart and I am gonna do it anyway. And that's what, how foster parents, I think, love in such an incredible way. Now, back to foster parents just for a second. I have a question for all of us as you think through this with me. Do you think that these foster families, whether they're here or in other places, do you think they have a greater capacity to love than God? In the way they love so extraordinary, do you think they can love greater than God? And For those of us that you know, grew up in the church, were Christians, we, we would say no, we, we don't think that because we don't think any of us can love like God loves Now, if you're here and you're not sure you believe or you've had some terrible experiences with religion and faith, you may say, listen, my experience is God doesn't love that much. I totally understand why you feel that way. I'm glad you're here to process through this with us. You just need to know that we believe as Christians that no one can love like God. And when someone does something extraordinary as fostering children or adopting children or just loving your own children well, that's a reflection of a God that has loved us Well, and the amazing thing in this Christmas season is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote over half the New Testament, had such great insight to who Jesus was. He helps us see this in in a chapter of a letter he wrote in Galatians. And we're going to actually look at Galatians chapter four. Now, I want to speak to you today if you're a skeptic and you decide to come and you may know this, you may not. One of my most favorite things to happen in our churches when skeptics show up and they walk through this dialogue with us because we're all trying to figure out faith in a deeper way. So if you're a skeptic, this might be helpful, and this might be helpful for all of us, When the Apostle Paul wrote Galatians, um, the the letter of Galatians to a little church in a place called Galatia, he wrote it in 52 AD. Now this is really important that he wrote it in 52 AD because he writes at the time of Nero. And if you know anything about the emperor Nero, he was incredibly cruel to Christians. And yet people believed in Jesus so much they kept following in in light of their being burned alive and sacrificed and all these terrible things. But what makes this even more important than that Is in fifty two A D, you could actually go back to Jerusalem, and talk to the people who knew Jesus. And if you've ever been told by a college professor or someone along the way that like that the whole gospel thing, the Jesus story, is made up, you need to know. In order to make up a legend or a myth, you need to wait for at least one generation of the people that were around for that myth or legend to die off. And typically it's more like two or three generations because you can't have anybody around that can verify or say that's a false myth. So you wait for everyone to die. Well, in 52 AD, when the Apostle Paul writes this, there's people still living in Jerusalem, and this is so fascinating, people living in Jerusalem that knew Jesus, were there for his death and there for his resurrection. And it is possible... It is possible that Jesus's mama, Mary, was still alive. And if it wasn't, if Mary wasn't still alive, the Apostle Paul, who knew all these people, knew John, one of Jesus' disciples. And John took care of Mary when her old age, because on the cross Jesus asked him to do that. And looking back, after you know, the Apostle Paul investigated all this, this was his version of how he saw and understood with clarity the Christmas story. And know that he writes this, not to necessarily a Jewish or Israelite audience, but to a Roman audience and a Greek audience. And this is what he writes. He says, but, but when, the time, when the set time had fully come. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about this. That for hundreds of years, God had seemingly gone kind of silent And it looked like God had given up on everything. And if if you've ever felt like God's given up on you, you should go back and watch last week's message. It might be helpful to you. But God was doing something. He'd marked on his calendar a time that he had a plan that he was gonna enact. And Paul believed that this plan was actually happening and had happened because he said, but when a a set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. You need to know that the apostle Paul, who was a brilliant man, educated, a Roman citizen believed. Those kids are having a great time, aren't they? Don't you wish church was like that when you were growing up? My goodness. You're just like, how am I stuck in with Matt in here? Why can't I be having so much fun with them? Born of a woman. That's what the apostle Paul believed. And I think we need to pay attention to this because we breeze by this. We romanticize this, and, and it's not our fault. It's not your fault. We romanticize this, but we love to put this whole idea in movies, and we love to put them in scenes in our yards. You know the manger scene that a lot of us have in our yards, or used to have in our yards, and they're made out of plastic. And you put the light behind Mary and the baby Jesus, and she looks so beautiful, and she looks so angelic. You know, we miss the fact that they put her on a donkey, and she had to ride to Bethlehem with a big belly and carrying a baby, and wondering how am I even going to raise the Son of God, and all this. Nursing Nervousness and fear. And once they got to the whole stable and she gave birth, I mean it's a manger in a place with animals and manure, and it's not beautiful, it's not perfect, it's not, you know, pristine. It's real dingy life. But God shows up in the middle of this. And the Apostle Paul believed that. And this is going to be a theme for the next few minutes. We talk that God came to really the most dismal place in the world to find you. And he came to the most dismal place in the world to find me. And we need to pay attention to that because people that saw this believed it. But when a time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman. This is really important. Born under the law. This is a big deal that Jesus was born under the law. And the law certainly refers to the Ten Commandments, but so much more like the law of God, like Jesus was accountable to the law, and Mary was accountable to the law, and not just Ten Commandments, but 600 rules and regulations plus more that they were just kept getting poured on. But Jesus didn't just come for the law. He came for a purpose to do something through the law and with the law, and that was something that was gonna involve you because he was on a mission And Paul was so clear about this and I hope we don't miss this in the Christmas season because the apostle Paul says in light of being under the law, next slide, he was born under the law to redeem those under the law. And this word redeem is, you know, a Christian word. It's a religious word. It's a beautiful word. It means to go and get something back. It can be applied in the Christmas season as we're buying stuff. My mom, my mom, who might be the cheapest person I've ever met in my life, is all about redeeming. My mom will go to four stores to find food that's on sale so she can redeem a little bit of money back. In fact, don't tell her I told you this, and mom, if you're watching, I'm ratting you out in front of everybody right now. Um, she, the other day, she, she found steaks on On sale. They were like three days old, and she wanted to get them half off, so she got them home. And I said, Well, how are they? How were they after you cooked them? And she said, Well, I chewed on it for like 30 minutes before I could swallow it. And I thought, Mom, you can afford decent steaks. Why? Because I want to redeem my money back. That was the language she used. If you've never heard this thought that when God came, He came to redeem you, to find you, to bring you back, grab something that was His that was lost somewhere on along the way. And here's the reason we had to be redeemed. And I know for some of you, this is not new information, but sometimes you just gotta come back to what's most important. See, we believe that the scripture is the authority for our lives And this scripture, when we read it, it tells us how to live and how God wants us to live, whether it's with our families or our marriages our morality, how we make decisions. In fact, you just need to know this. If you're wondering how to run things in your life, the best place you can go is to the scripture. But the problem with us as human beings is we reject a lot of that. Sometimes it's Intentional. A lot of us had seasons in our lives and we just went, listen, I'm rejecting that. I'm going my own way. I'm doing my own thing. So that's part of it. And sometimes we do it. We don't even realize we're doing it because we can't get it all right. We can't get it all perfect. For instance, it's just really hard for me to be a perfect husband every day of my life. And if you ask my wife, Tina, she will verify that over and over and over again. And so I, I mess that up. This law, this authority, what the scripture says and how I should live. And when I do that, and this is a big thought, when I don't do what God's asked me to do, I have and you have and we have a debt-debtor relationship. And now I owe God something because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And we all do that. For instance, most of us, most of us would say, it's good that we have speed limits in our world and in our country. I know some of you would love to get rid of them all together, but most of us think it's good to have speed limits. But can I ask you a question? How many of you drive the speed limit all the time? And the answer is uh, none of us drive the speed limit all the time. In fact, if I started going down the list, how many like to try and get nine miles over, nine and a half miles over without getting caught, you like yeah that's me right because there's laws that we agree with but we don't pay attention side note don't tell anybody I told you this The other day, after our night of worship on Wednesday, I'm walking out of the parking lot and some young whippersnapper, man, do I sound old when I say that, some young whippersnapper came driving through our parking lot at a straight diagonal about 40 miles an hour. I mean, he was flying and I had my computer bag and I almost threw my computer bag at him because I just like, you shouldn't do that. Have you ever had that thing? You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. And then I remembered the Sunday before I'm so embarrassed to tell you this. Sunday before, I was late getting to church, and at seven o'clock, I was coming through the parking lot about 45 miles an hour. And I thought, I'm such a hypocrite, right? I believe that other people should follow these rules, but I don't want to follow the rules. And maybe you feel more intense about it, like somebody owes you a debt. Like you had a parent that should have been there for you, and they weren't, and they owe you. You had a father that said he was going to be your father and take care of you and be with your mom. And then he wasn't there and he wasn't there for dinners and he wasn't there for ball games. And he wasn't there to tuck you in. He wasn't there at your wedding, whatever it is. And you feel like my dad owes me. Or maybe for you, it's just the other way. You feel like you owe someone. You have your own kids and you missed out in the most important years of their life. And you can't pay, this is the problem with the debt is you can't pay that debt back. That's gone and it's passed because you missed it. And here's what you need to know. And it's really hard for us to say this in our world, but it's still true that sin always creates a debt. Whether I sin against you, I sin against God, which really is the same thing because God cares about you and he cares about his law. It breaks, it separates It pulls away. And we've all done that. And I know we don't want to admit that in our world, but we have all done that. And I've been following Jesus for a lot of years, and I'm still doing that. And I'll talk about that in just a second. And in light of that brokenness and the fact that sin has done something that's separated us from God, the apostle Paul believed with all of his heart that Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law, who had obviously broken the law because you can't undo what you've done. And that's where we get stuck. I can't undo what I've done. I've tried to be a better person. I've tried to follow the rules. Tried, but I can't make up for what I've done. No matter what I do, I can't make it up. And this is what lit up the first century church, is that people really believed that Jesus redeemed them by what he did. That when he died on the cross, he paid our debt. What we could not go back and fix... Jesus fixed when we trusted him as our Lord and Savior. Because all my promises have come short. Uh, You know, Isaac said that in his baptism story. When I realized that I didn't have to perform to find God's favor and love, it was like a weight. You know why? Because it's a weight that you can't carry. And can you imagine being pardoned of all of your sin? This is why the first century church, when Jesus rose from the dead, it blew up. It exploded. People wanted to be a part, and people would share their stories, and they would gather in homes and they would pray and they would break bread and they would get baptized. By the way, if you've not been baptized and you follow Jesus, you should get baptized. That's a really good thing to do. It's a necessary thing. But it's because God had done something on the inside. They were forgiven. Now here's what's amazing, that can feel just in that alone, just feel like a little judicial if you're just reading it, you know, all by yourself alone, because it's like, all right, I sinned, I was forgiven, I'm redeemed, and now I'm pardoned. That feels a little judicial. You need to know that the Apostle Paul, when he's writing this, he's just warming up. I'm like, he's just getting started, because this is where he goes from there, that Jesus came to redeem those under the law that we might receive. Adoption to sonship. This is more than just being forgiven because I can forgive someone I don't even know, and that's true. You can forgive someone around the world by just deciding, I'm going to forgive you. But this is about coming close. And when the Apostle Paul looked back over his life and what he learned and what God had spoken into him and what people told him about Jesus, he decided this, that God wanted to be close to you Stay on the slide, Roger, if you will. He wanted to adopt you as a son and as a daughter. This is redemption and a whole lot more. Now, here's what's interesting when Paul uses this language to the Galatians. They were Roman and Greek people, a lot of them at least, and roman adoption was not adoption like we think about adoption in our world because this is what we think about adoption we're going to find a child maybe you know preferably often we're going to find the tiniest little baby and we're going to adopt it now you know on face value before you take the baby home and it cries all night and poops all over the place because that's what happens with babies right you look at a precious little baby and you think i would love to adopt this child But that's probably not the adoption that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Because Romans, especially rich, wealthy, powerful Romans, did not adopt babies, and they did not adopt toddlers, and they probably wouldn't even adopt teenagers, and here's why. I don't know, and they didn't know how a baby's going to turn out. And what would happen is, a Roman citizen, especially if they had power and wealth, they would want to make sure that whoever they leave their titles and their land and their power and riches and authority to could handle it and were wise and were smart and powerful to handle it well because it was just a ruthless cutthroat system. I don't really care if you're my biological son or daughter. I wanna leave all the stuff I've worked for to someone that's gonna take care of it. It's a legacy thing. And so what they would do is they would find people, often that were not their own children, and adopt them if they trust them. This is why. Because the rich and powerful looked at their own children and thought, what well, you've thought about your kids. There is no way. I am leaving my stuff to you, you little yahoo. You've thought about that, right? Maybe the more terrifying thought is, you're going to take care of me when I'm old. How are, You can't even remember to put your shoes on. How are you going to take care of me? I've thought that a few times. In other words, you're spoiled. I can't trust you with everything that I have. Now, now we know this is true because Julius Caesar, you've heard of Julius Caesar, After he was murdered and assassinated, they read his will and they found out that he had adopted his great-grandnephew, I believe, and I'll mess this up a little bit, Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, the Caesar that we read about in Luke that was there at the time of Jesus' birth. And Octavian... He decides to marry his wife's previous child because he trusted him as an adult male, and he decides to leave everything to a man named Tiberius. I'm going to mess this up just along the way, but Tiberius becomes a Caesar, and this is where it gets really weird. He adopts his wife's son, and then he adopts, I'm not making this part up, he adopts as a Caesar his wife as his daughter. I'm serious, so he could leave everything to his wife. And When I read that in the historical books, I thought, man, it was feels like they must have lived in alabama (laughs) i've been waiting all week to tell you that i mean it's like all week enjoy the heisman all right anyway so 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 you see this picture right you see this picture and here here's the whole point they would have never adopted you and they would have never adopted me most likely Because Julius Caesar would look at me and go, well, you're not smart enough or strong enough or wise enough or trustworthy enough. I need somebody better than you. I certainly wouldn't adopt you, Matt, as a 20-year-old, and I didn't want you as a 5-year-old, and so I would have discarded you. But Paul says, God forgave you if you put your faith in him. And if you trust Jesus with your life and what he did on the cross, he'll redeem you. He'll bring you back. But more importantly, he adopt you into his family. And here is the beauty of a Caesar adopting you if you're Octavian. You'd like read the world and realize, I'm rich. I get everything. I get the whole Roman Empire as my kingdom. And Paul is telling his audience, you get to be an inheritance of God's kingdom. Not just redeemed, not just forgiven. All those are incredible, beautiful things. You are part of God's family. You're This was unbelievable. The world had never seen this kind of love and intimacy before, especially when it came to God. And this is what he goes on to say. Because, because, oh, back up one. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, father. And I, I, there's so much here in just these few verses, but we blow by them and we don't really pay attention if, unless we just take time to think through this because this is big about how we relate to God. Now, just so you know, this word Abba is an Aramaic word. You probably know this, but if you don't, it's an Aramaic word. And there was no translation in the Greek language, which the, most of the New Testament scriptures is writ, written in. There's no translation for the word Abba. So they just left the word Abba in there. Now, this is what's fascinating. We do have a translation for the word Abba in the English language. It's just simply the word daddy. It's just simply the word Daddy. And somehow in my heart, my mind, and I think this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to leverage, is there is a level of intimacy here with our Heavenly Father that goes past what most of us ever understood. Do you know the first time that this word was ever used in reference to God was when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. At least this is what we can find was when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the garden he was hanging out, talking to God before he went to the cross and he's weeping and he's sweating blood and he's crying out please let this cup pass because I don't want to have to go to the cross and it wasn't, that was humanity speaking out and it wasn't just the physical pain it was the pain, the fact that he would have to bear the sin of every human being that would ever place their trust in him I mean you think your sin is a weight to bear, it is can you imagine bearing the sin of all eternity for people that would follow him and in that moment, he does not say, Father, let this cup pass. He says, huh. it's a little emotional. He says, Daddy, Daddy, let this cup pass. But Jesus was on a mission and he still went to the cross. The point is this, you're invited to call your heavenly father the same thing that Jesus calls his heavenly father, Daddy. And I'm telling you, when you pray that way, if you've ever tried this, if you ever like, got down on your knees wherever you pray and you go, Daddy, I need your help, it's powerful, but it's terrifying. Because most of us weren't brought up to talk to God in such an intimate way, but it's a relationship, a trust. And if you're a daddy or if you're a mama, you know when your little one comes calling for you and they need you, it's because they're trusting to find what they need in you. And the invitation is to find what you need in your daddy in heaven who gave his son to pave a way and you're invited to that. All right, side note real quick, just to get me out of the emotion, if you will. This whole idea is there, there's no word in um, the Greek for Abba. It's the same as the word taco. I read this this week, trying to get my mind not so emotional. Um, Do you know that tacos, I think they came from Mexico or someplace south of the border. Um, There's no English word for tacos, and so that's why we just call tacos tacos. So there's a side note. You can impress somebody with your trivia. It's the same with Abba. There's no translation in the Greek, but we get to call God our daddy. And so there's a result, the Apostle Paul would say. You get to call your heavenly father daddy. So, you are no longer a slave. And this is so significant. Because you know what a slave does? A slave follows the rules. A slave can go certain places and he can't go certain places. He can do certain things and he can't do certain things. And a slave is treated by how he follows the rules. And I think what the Apostle Paul is saying, listen you're no longer a slave. This is a dad, son, daughter, dad relationship from here on out. This is why God sent you, sent his son to you. Because this is never gonna be again about following the rules. And somebody will ask me today, I'm sure, well, Matt, shouldn't I read the scriptures and do what it says? Of course you should. Because it's the best path forward in honoring your savior and following him and loving other people. But your love, his love for you and who you are is not based on how well you follow the rules. You can't follow the rules that well. But when you know how much you're loved, my goodness, we start to do extraordinary things in following God to the nth degree. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a song, and I hope this just resonates in your heart. In the beginning of the song, it starts out for the unclean. And the unholy. And for the broken and the unworthy. You came. Jesus, you came. And people tell me these days that nobody really believes they're this anymore. Like we live in a culture where we really don't believe we're sinful or unclean or unholy. And I get that. Because in our culture, and I can do this for myself, I don't want to ever look at myself as sinful or unholy or not good. But I really don't believe that because of this simple thing. When I'm alone and you're alone... And I think about my life and the things I've done wrong, it's almost unavoidable to think I am not doing this right. And some of you came today because you've come to the conclusion you are not getting this right and you're invited. And the flip side of that is super religious people, which you know some super religious people think. They're so religious that they're not doing anything wrong. And let me just say to anyone that's super religious in the room and you think you've done it right for so long, you bring that crap to God and he's going to go, what are you talking about? You think somehow you're getting it so right you still don't need me? This is an invitation. This is an invitation for all of us to lean into and walk towards He says, so you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you. Let's just say this together. God has made you a heir of his entire kingdom. So when I think about foster kids and how they're loved so well, I think, oh, yeah, because he's made us an heir and here's the beauty. When you bring foster kids into your home, when you adopt kids that are not yours, you have chosen them wherever they are in life. For those of us that had, those of us that had biological children, we just went, oh, these were given to us. But when an adopted kid is coming into your home, you have chosen them. Let me ask you a question. If you were chosen by God through the blood of his son, do you have any idea What you're worth to God, and I don't know what your view of God is. If you think God's angry, if you think God's trying to make you jump through 10 hoops so you'll be okay with them, He chose you. That's what Paul just said He chased you down. He said, you can come and you don't have to pray to me as a slave anymore. That's freeing in itself. You did not have to pray like, God, I'm doing these things. I'm making it right. So God, in light of what I'm making right, could you just, you know, be there in this one area of my life? You don't have to do that at all. You can come to God as a child that is loved by God. You can't make that stuff up because this is what Paul says. When the time fully had come, this is Christmas, This is what Christmas is all about. This is what changed the world. That God was gonna adopt a whole bunch of sinning adult children to be his and be forgiven and redeemed and adopted. But when the set time had fully come, next slide, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. To be God's eternal child. It's amazing. And here's what happens when this goes from our head. Because right now it's in a lot of our heads. Because a lot of us grew up with this. And maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this. But when it goes from our head and it actually transfers to our heart. And we actually believe it in our soul. It wrecks us. And it starts to dictate the direction of our lives and how we love and how we fight for our marriages and how we fight for our children and know God and how we decide to tell the truth and be moral and do the right thing and live in a way that God would call us to because something has changed inside us. It doesn't turn into God. I'm a law keeper. And so I'm just going to try and do really good today. And if I don't, I just hope you don't smite me that goes away to God you love me so much I'm going to love you back and I'm going to obey at all costs and when I'm tempted I'm going to say no to temptation because you said no to temptation for me and I'm going to follow and here's how I want to end our time together this morning we're going to sing that song and let me remind you of the words for the unclean and the unholy we're going to sing that out loud I would love for you to consider embracing that. And if you're not ready to embrace that today, listen, I'm not going to try and talk you into it or make you in any way or guilt you or shame you. You got to get there on your own terms. But I'm going to invite you. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not sure if you believe in God at all, I'm going to invite you just to say, that's me. I'm unclean and I don't know holy. I'm not getting everything right. For the broken, some of you feel so broken today and I get it because of some circumstances that have happened, maybe Outside your control, for the unworthy. You came, Jesus, you came for me. And if you've never done this before, I would love to invite you to say, for the very first time, I'm a sinful person. And I'm not hiding it, and I'm not trying to make up for it anymore. Jesus, I'm just confessing, I'm a sinful person. And I need your forgiveness. And I'm deciding today, Jesus, the best that I can to accept your forgiveness, your redemption, but maybe most importantly, the adoption into your family, God. So I can call you daddy, forgiven and redeemed by what you did, not what I've done. And here's the hardest part about that. Then you, then you trust that the best you can and ask God to, do a good work in you which he's always willing to do and I would love for you to consider just saying that simple prayer I'm a broken sinful person forgive me Jesus by what you did on the cross redeem my life and bring me into your family and today I call you daddy let me pray for you heavenly father daddy as we soak in this we soak in the truth of your scripture, your word, Paul told us. I pray for the people that are ready to take that step. That step would be taken today. And there would be a a humbleness and a confidence to walk towards you, Jesus, because we believe you're walking towards us. And for those of us that have been following you for a while, I pray we'd be able to say the exact same thing because we all need you no matter where we are in our journey. We need you, Jesus, above anything else. Thank you for the privilege and the honor to call you our father, our daddy, this morning. And thanks for loving us. And thanks for Christmas. That points to the fact that we are not people under the law, but we're adopted sons and daughters of God. Take our lives now and use it for your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.